Hello and welcome to the very first NeuroAccess at Work live podcast. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Annie Crow, and I'm an Australian human rights lawyer and the founder of NeuroAccess, a consultancy focused on accessibility for neurodivergent people everywhere. But before we start, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and country in Australia and around the world and their connection to land, water and community. We pay our respects to their cultures, both elders, past and present. Neuro Access at Work is a monthly live stream that I hope continues the cultural change needed around neurodiversity at work. And each month I will have different guests who I believe can add immense value to this important conversation. Speaking of which, welcome Dr. Mel Hauser. Hello. Hello. Dr. Mel Hauser is a family physician and the founder and executive director of All, ba All Brains Belong, a nonprofit organization in Vermont in the oh. US. And All Brains Belong has pioneered an innovative model that integrates medical care with social connection, employment support and community education. Yay. Uh, Dr. Hauser provides neurodiversity training to healthcare practices and workplaces around the US on how to create environments where people with all types of brains can get their needs met and thrive. Woohoo! Which is exactly why we're here today. So let's get into it. <laughs> do quickly, it. Before we dive in, I just want to do a really quick visual description. I'm Annie and I have uh, medium length brown hair and super pale skin. <laughs> Uh, and I'm a proud fat woman wearing a light dress with a blue pattern on it and sitting in my home office, which is very pink. <laughs> Mel, do you want to go go ahead? Sure. Um, Mel Hauser. I use she, they pronouns. I am a white person with short, dark hair, wearing a dark gray sweater, and I'm um, sitting in my really messy office with a uh, light teal background. Is yours like mine, where the mess is mostly where you can't see because you do not want to see this like, wall next to me? <laughs> No, my okay. mess is right in front of me. Okay. Everywhere oh, gotcha. within It looks quite organized chaos. behind you. The books looks orderly. <laughs> <laughs> Not our reality, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, um, I think uh, just to kick us off and warm us up, I thought we could start with talking a bit about our own neurodivergent identities for people who might not be very familiar with us. So I'm Annie. I'm a multiply disabled neurodivergent, autistic, ADHD, dyslexic human with a history of an eating disorder and trauma like many neurodivergent people have. Um, what about you, Mel, for the people in the back? Yeah, so I am autistic with a PDA profile, ADHD, dyspraxic, dyscalculic, dyslexic. I didn't know anything about my brain at all until I was 37 years old. Um, I also have long covid yeah, good point. So do I. <laughs> and if you want to hear more, Mel and I actually did a podcast on my other podcast, Princess and the P, on long COVID in the autistic community, which you can find on YouTube or any podcast platform. We, yeah, get into that a lot. <laughs> so I've sort of broken today down and we don't have a lot of time, so we're just going to dive in. Um, but I've broken it down into a, a five different main topics. We're going to start talking about 
neuroinclusive culture in the workplace. Then we're going to dive into burnout, which is a hot topic with our community and something a lot of us struggle with, um, which will roll into talking about neurodivergent access needs and self-advocacy at work, one of my favourite topics. And finally, psychological safety from a neurodivergent perspective. So... Let's start with culture and I want to bring up, if any of you follow All Brains Belong on Insta, a quote from Dr Mel who says, everybody wants inclusion, they just may have no idea what it means. And I love that quote because it's so, so true. I think most people really have good intention and want inclusion, Um, inclusion for all, not just obviously neurodivergent, but all minorities and oppressed groups and such. But... I guess I wanted to talk to you about what do you mean by that and why maybe we focus more on an inclusive culture rather than specific practices because I think you and I have very similar tactics in our teachings and I I thought you could kick us off and uh, let's just go from there. Sounds good. Yeah, I mean, I think that people are often asking like, what do I do? What do I do that whole, you know, you're talking about neuroinclusion. What do I do? But I, I think that, you know, inclusion and I, I think, unfortunately, I think a lot sometimes there are like words that like become buzzwords and then it becomes kind of tricky to use them. But I think we're really talking about a mindset, right? Like a mindset. So if you start with the premise that we all have different brains, different brains have different needs let's just offer everything we do in multiple different ways and give people freedom and choice to pick which way works best for them. Like that's neuro inclusion as opposed to, you know, here are some special things you do for, you know, in special cases. Cause I mean, that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel good when there's a default and you're clearly not it. Absolutely. And I think that default is something that, most of our community have been fighting against our whole lives. So to go from having to fight that neuronormative default to having to fight other people's expectations and bias of what works for certain neurotypes is really not helpful for many of us. And I get quite anxious. Um, I get asked a lot to talk to corporate and government employers and they always want to know, like, give us practical examples, which I do, but I'll, I'll never prescribe a list because even within our own community. I mean, we're sitting here both autistic ADHDs with very similar histories and backgrounds, and yet we have very different access needs. And so if there's just this list, then the risk you run is one, they may not be helpful for the individuals that they're meant to be serving, right? But equally, um, when those individuals ask for accommodations that aren't on that list, What's going to happen then? Are they not believed? Are they not, uh, they said, that's not what we were told helps neurodivergent people. You know, it's it's like a slippery slope, I think. <laughs> um, well, I also think that um, when, first off, you know, I, I, I think you want to get into this later, but like the idea that first off, not, okay. not, not all neurodivergent people even know that they're neurodivergent. They may just know that they're miserable and that they're being thwarted left and right, except they don't know that either. They're thwarted left and right and they tell themselves it's their fault. So like there's, there, there's that. And then you stack on top. So even if I know I'm neurodivergent, I may not necessarily feel safe 
like telling you I'm neurodivergent and, you know, I, I may not even know what, what I need, right? Like we didn't grow up talking about a frame of access and access needs, even though, you know, all humans have access needs. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I certainly may not know what mine are and how to talk about it or what to ask for. Um, but even like a third layer. So say I do disclose that I have a disability and I am seeking accommodations. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of times I, I even, you know, patients of mine, you know, they're told, well, oh, you know, you're, you're ADHD. Here are the things we offer for ADHD. It's like, well, I'm actually like an individual. I have an individual brain with individual yeah. needs. And like, how about you maybe try to understand what exactly is hard for me and maybe even try to learn about my strengths so that the thing I'm doing can be offered in a way that works for my brain strengths. Absolutely. And especially, you know, so many people like us who are autistic and have ADHD have very conflicting needs. <laughs> um, so tr sometimes traditional things that will help someone who's just an ADHD will absolutely not help us, which, yeah, the individuality of it is so important. But also, I think touching on that, we can we don't have to stick to the, you know, this is a this is a neurodivergent friendly work like podcast. So we don't have to stick to those topics and we can jump around. But um, I think you know, it is really important in terms of, you know, feeling safe to be able to ask for your needs to be met is having that cultural shift in the workplace where everyone feels like they can ask for their needs to be met or, or talk about what their preferences are, communication styles and sensory and all of those things so that you don't have to come out with a, a diagnosis flag in order to have anyone pay attention, you know. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I, I can also say as an employer of neurodivergent people, um, you know, most of us have never been asked for our needs. And so if you were just to even say, what are your access needs? Like people don't know how to answer that. Yeah. So it's really also about using universal design principles, offering things in multiple different ways, offering a menu um, of multiple things, you know, plus whatever else you come up with, um, yes. you know, but, but like the ideation part, the like coming up with the ideas of what exactly I might need, like that's the part that's hardest for a lot of brains. Yes, yes. And I love, you know, I talk about this a lot with teaching neurodivergent people to self-advocate is it's really scary sometimes to ask for support or to come out as neurodivergent and immediately they're like, oh, what do you need? But it's actually quite hard for us to, to know, especially in those early days, what our needs are and then to understand the dynamic nature of them and, and explain that to others um, I think is really important. I just saw a comment. Sorry, it's not very easy to see on the screen. I'll read it. Um, I, just, I was just sent this article by a colleague and the statistic found that among several thousand people surveyed, a large percentage of the people surveyed indicated that they choose not to chose not to disclose at work because of the stigma there is still a large cultural shift needed absolutely christina that's one that's of the biggest the problems case in healthcare yeah, like exactly. there's 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 research autistic like only a third of autistic people who know they're autistic tell their primary care physicians they're autistic for fear of stigma like it's yes. it's this is everywhere absolutely and not even just the stigma element i think also just you know, that, that pressure to constantly have to advocate in all settings. I know this still happens to me to this day when I see new physicians and doctors, you know, saying, oh, I'm autistic. They look at you like, okay, like it doesn't matter. What does that mean? I love the stuff that All Brains Belong's doing in the health set setting. And I know we're here to talk about employment, but health is so intrinsically linked with our employment because so many of us do have chronic illnesses and 
all of that, but we won't get too into that. But <laughs> I, um, I just loved that, you know, the education you're doing, it needs to go global and all healthcare providers really need to have that basic understanding that if someone comes to you and says, I'm autistic or neurodivergent or whatever, that that means that they're going to understand some natural adjustments they need to make in their practice, which can be as simple. Including? Yeah. Well, including. Including to ask you what you need. Well, exactly. Right? Like, I mean, Same, how about that? Okay, okay. How can I actually help you? <laughs> Yeah. Just side note, I was at the vet the other day because my dog decided to get an ear infection straight after I'd had one because we're twins. <laughs> and they were explaining the medication that he needed and it was like eardrops and tablets. And it was just the most ridiculous, like take two a day for the first three days, then one a day for five days and then every second day for the rest and then it was a whole nother thing. And they didn't write it down at all. So I repeated it back to them because I'm like, working memory, come on, kick up. And I literally got in my car and wrote it down. Usually I'll hit record or something. But it's why isn't it almost like standard practice to write that stuff down? Like the lack of understanding in the health profession. <laughs> on how our brains work and what support we need is huge. <laughs> well, it's also sometimes a conflicting access need thing. Yes. So if, I, if, if I'm a clinician and I'm like rushing around and it's like chaos and I'm being rushed around and, you know, I and, and, and it comes more naturally for me to use mouth words um, as opposed to like sequence my ideas in written form and like write it all out. Like, I mean, you got to do it. Oh, um, yeah. You have to negotiate that conflicting access needs piece, but that framework's not even there to even understand that that's what's happening behind the scenes. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, you know, we have to start somewhere. Right. And I think in talking about this stuff, burnout is such a huge problem. I think since COVID hit, it's a problem for a lot of people, but it's really, really impacting our community and not having our access needs met and not having neuroinclusive workplaces is a direct link to why we are suffering and struggling with burnout because a lot of my clients will come to me in burnout and then they go back to work once they've had some time off and they think they're recovering and then they burn out again because the workplaces are just not equipped to understand what adjustments to make so that they don't keep burning out and actually can exist in the workplace <laughs> in a safe yes. way. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on burnout in general and and how yeah. it yeah it matters i i think it's important to name that burnout is inevitable when the demands um of your life exceed mm -hmm. your capacity for a prolonged period of time without opportunity to recover. It's like, um, you know, it's like my cell phone when it runs out of battery, which is like often because my executive functioning is such that like me and the charger are never in the same place, right? So, um, but you know, I can't like make the call, you know, like the phone died. I can't, I don't have any battery. I can't just like dig deep and find my why and make the phone call. Like I can't use the phone until I charge my battery. Um, and I think that, that's what happens, right? And, you know, I, I say this as someone who like, you know, like many late identified autistic people, I got my autism diagnosis in the context of um, pretty profound autistic burnout. And it, it's, it's, 
even even with self-awareness and even with the privilege i mean there's a lot i i i have i have so many aspects of my identity and my you know my situation that have privilege and and and, and really importantly is that i have autonomy over like a lot of the conditions of my life which is not the case for a lot most of people times. and even with autonomy over most of the conditions of my life i still you should you i mean just like you, 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 the cycles they repeat you like repeat the patterns mm -hmm. um and there's a lot that goes into that but i think just like it, it restated more simply is that this is what's going to happen if you don't have a life that where, where your needs are met absolutely absolutely i think that's such an important topic and i i know that um our other chat which will be on our both our private communities at some point we go into privilege a lot and it's just I think that's what really, you know, puts a fire underneath me, which is, you know, with all of my privilege and access to things and ability to self-advocate and, you know, I still struggle and so does all of my community. And that's what's really scary because if you've got any extra layer of struggles, like you're just, you're set up to fail. And I really... Some of the conversations I hear online around burnout, it's so focused on the individual learning to overcome it, but I think it's so important to acknowledge that it's really, it's an environmental influence as well. Like, yes, there are things you can learn and there are things you can do and put in place, but at the end of the day, we still live in a neuronormative society, right? And until that completely changes or opens up, that's we're still going to constantly face those barriers no matter how good we get at meeting our own access needs and advocating for support um and i like to i just want to bring that up because i think a lot of people feel shame that they do continually burn out um and so do we i mean you don't preach into the choir your story i'm like yeah right over here as well and you know that shame is just unhelpful for everyone but most of all it can really get in the way of us feeling safe to speak up and and, and it's also, I guess, going back to square one, it's why that cultural shift is so necessary, right? Yes. And I think that one of the things that we've found at All Brains Belong, so, you know, not only are we integrating employment support into medical care, because I absolutely agree with you, um, em employment is part of health. You know, we know we know that we know the, the the that the literature shows that those things are related in both directions. Absolutely. Um, so 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 really, what we're 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 teaching people is yes to develop an awareness of their access needs, but it's really it's 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 about also educating employers to appreciate the strengths of all brains and to offer things in multiple different ways because you don't you don't you don't know and people don't know what is thwarting them they are just struggling and they yeah. tell themselves like i said before they tell themselves it's their fault mm -hmm. and that's reinforced um by many workplace cultures and mm -hmm. you know i think i think one of the things that we see is that when people come together and in community community where they feel safe connect they, they feel connected with other people they hear other people sharing their stories and they hear their own experiences reflected back to them. And that is what allows that profound shift in self-narrative. I'm not broken, I'm not defective, and I never was. 
and you take that with you and it's not you know it's certainly a journey of course of unpacking all and unlearning all of the internalized ableism and all of these explicit and implicit messages along the past decades of your life but it starts with realizing you're not the only one Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I think that just you know working in a world where we are the minority and even if there are more of us out there than we even know in terms of you know one in five or whatever most of us are pretty quiet about our struggles and so you're really missing that connection and you're missing that understanding that you're not alone and that there are so many people like you who find quite basic things in a workplace really challenging including something as simple as meetings without an agenda or um, lack of captions or needing to use a phone instead of emails. Anyway, so I think, yeah, I'm I'm so pro-community and, and leaning into, you know, your neurokin to not only just feel that connection and understanding but also to be able to talk to each other about your challenges and get ideas for things that can help and, you know, I think we are the best resource for ourselves in terms of, if you're going through it, there's pr- you're pretty much guaranteed that there's at least some other neurodivergent people that have been through it or are trying to still overcome it, which is so. Anyway, I think we're already touching on it, but psychological safety, which comes very heavily into masking, and masking is another topic I love. And I am a high-masking person and I'm still trying to unmask, but I also have a very strong belief that the ability to unmask is very much influenced on your privilege, your environment, so many factors that it's not as simple as just learning to unmask and then doing it and there are always going to be different environments where you need to mask more or less due to safety reasons whether that's your own safety internally believing that you need the safety or whether it's very real imposed safety threats which often are experienced by those (coughs) with other marginalized identities even more so like lgbtq and um, people of color and such but um Psychological safety is a big one because if you work in a space where you don't feel like you can talk to your colleagues or supervisor and open up about your struggles or even any sort of things that you want changed, then there's this wall before you can even get to a point where people can start supporting you or you can, you know, not be burnt out and even access employment to begin with, right? So, yeah. Let's um, dive into masking and psychological safety. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 often patients will ask me, well, like, how do I, le-? I, I sort of like, I've, I've recognized that I'm masking and, 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 and how do I, how do I stop? And you're like, you can't just like decide to stop. That's not how it works. Um, you know, for, for many autistic people, this is, you know, an involuntary automatic survival strategy mm-hmm. and so you for this 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 is about the nervous system's appraisal of safety even even um beyond conscious awareness so i think you know when i think safety comes first for everything and i think that when there are environments that are psychologically emotionally physically unsafe um this is the limbic system trying to protect us and so um it it's it's i i i think 
I mean, obviously we're, we're, we're not a homogenous group by any means, but I think that many, what many people describe is that when they're in environments where they feel safe and, you know, many people have, they don't have any environments where they feel safe. They don't have any environments where they are, you know, like, it's, it's just true. It's not safe. Um, but in environments where safety is felt, um, safety showing up as one's authentic self when there's things that cue safety from the environment. I, I, I think that quote unmasking happens not by choice. It just safety mm -hmm. is cued and you have the experience of letting your guard down and you say something or you do something or you know, something that, and, and, and nothing bad happens to you. Mm -hmm. And then those cycles reinforce themselves. Absolutely. And I think that's such an important point in terms of self-advocacy as well, because you're right, like safety isn't just on or off, like it's a progressive thing. It's you've got to build trust. And I think in terms of self-advocacy, uh, a lot of the work I do in the human rights sort of space is, you know, disability rights and you're entitled to access and all of those things. But equally, we work in environments where, once you get to that point where you are demanding access, it's usually like people get defensive, it can get toxic, it goes down a deep hole. Exactly. So really the, the way I like to talk about people starting their own self-advocacy journey in, access, in, in trying to get their access needs met at work is talking about using language like I work better when, yeah, you know, and really gently putting your needs out there and seeing the response from the workplace. Because if you say those things and everyone's sort of like, oh, yeah, cool, we can try that or we can do that and there's no big deal, great, then you're going to keep building that. But if there's immediately like, well, that's silly, we can't do that, you know, you've broken that already and you know it's going to be an uphill battle and it's sort of like do I try and fight this battle or do I try to find, if you can, a workplace that's a bit further along that journey of neuroinclusive culture. Right, because I think that, um, you know, a lot of times people will talk about how, well, you know, I, I you know, I'm really stressed out, you know, I, I, I can't say this, I can't talk about this, I can't do this, but it's because it's because it's new, you know, I'll just get used to it. I think that a lot of these cues of safety, they happen, they happen quickly. Very. Um, you know, you, 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 I think it's though, I think it's the process of learning to trust your intuition. I think often um, so many of us, um, and it, it's trauma physiology, really, you know, there's just so much brain body disconnect for, you know, a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you go into an environment, you get this cue, you know, your neuroception, your threat detection sounds the alarm. And then you're like, you try to cortically override it. You're like, oh, that's not real. You know, oh, you know, what's the evidence for? What's the evidence? Like, why are we reading evidence? Your neuroception said no. Yeah. Um, and that's all that matters. And so it's, I think, you know, for, for me, you know, two and a half years since learning anything about my brain whatsoever, really, um, you know, I think the biggest, the biggest difference is my journey of learning to trust my intuition. You know, do I overcall it like a lot? Sure. But I go with it because that's more important than anything. Yeah. And it's almost like you have to work even harder at it because those pathways are so broken from spending our whole lives being gaslit by the world and, oh, you can't possibly be in that much pain or 
be that emotional or that anything, um, or, you know, having our atypical reactions and such. Right. Or even like something as, as subtle yet profound as like, it's loud in here. It's not loud. It's yeah. hot in here. It's not hot. Like, oh, I guess I'm the kind of person who doesn't even know when I feel hot. Like, yeah. what does that even mean? Yeah. And, so you know, that takes its toll. Mm, mm, absolutely. And I think it's something that you need to work at constantly and become aware and catch those things because unconsciously it's so hard, even consciously doing it. You know, I've had years of practice now and I'm still struggling <laughs> and slowly like getting more used to hearing that, that type of sort of inner critic that's trying to question myself and put others' views above my own because that's just my history. <laughs> yep. 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 And how could it not be, right? Like that's yeah. how how could how could that impact not be there from all these decades? Mm, um, and which is why, you know, connecting with community kind of like, you know, I, I think the thing about gaslighting is when you can shift or, you know, anything like, you know, the invalidation, shame, all of those things, when you can shift like shame from the noun that you experience to the verb that person is shaming me um for me that becomes like a how dare you shame yeah. <laughs> me that is very different than i am internalizing mm. that shame and and Absolutely. and that comes from connection with people who are safe yes. um you know when you have experiences of feeling safe and your reality i mean like i think you know what what is reality everybody's reality is subjective to their own experience your reality is defined by the cues of safety around you absolutely yeah so true it's uh lunchtime in in australia and evening over in the us so it's 9 um, p.m i'm yeah. falling asleep <laughs> but, I, but i appreciate the i appreciate you, the dopamine and you're waking me up a little Oh, that's good. That's good. I couldn't even tell. I um, I appreciate not having a morning start. When I do UK talks, I have to do it early in the morning and I'm I'm not really a person before midday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We did that to you when you came and actually we can, yeah. um, we'll, we'll dig it's up the club. link to when you presented at Brain Club. We made you get up in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Although I was so excited to talk at Brain Club that, that I think that really helped. <laughs> I got my dopamine <laughs> hit early. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no, but um, no, I think we've touched on a lot of important points. And I think one of the main takeaways that I hope that, you know, neurodivergent allies take from this is really that do your research, listen to lived experience, but ultimately question your biases and understand that it's, you can't go and learn a prescription of what a neurodivergent person needs in the workplace. You really need to treat everyone like the individual that they are can i can i add what you know it's it's yeah, it's, uh, it's it's definitely I, I always do this thing where it's like take home points and i say something that i didn't say at all before do you it know, that's the, you know, <laughs> recap right so, yeah. anyway new concept <laughs> is the idea of you know we, we speak about safety and psychological safety how do you cue safety there's so that's going to be also very individualized but there are some like mm -hmm. best practices of neuro inclusion not mm -hmm. i'm not saying here's a list of the things you do as accommodations for particular neurodivergencies i'm saying like things you do that that that, that can go a pretty far way at mm. um at, toward neuro inclusion and i would say like one is to normalize neurodiversity right we all have different brains we all have different needs like explicitly naming that can go a long way um like at our employment support program earlier 
someone was talking about how, you know, the, the fact that, you know, explicitly it is named every time that you can't, observation is a completely valid form of participation, that that needs to be explicitly named because of all the places where that's not the case, where there's pressure to perform and pressure to show up a certain way. It's like, nope, you can really actually participate however you are most comfortable. I wish um, that happened at university. <laughs> Right, right, I because the participation so points, the, yeah, and, you know, exactly. all that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But such a good point. Um, and I think, you know, adding to that, the universal design principles is trying to make the workplace as accessible to as many people as humanly possible and not waiting for them to come to you to ask for access, but to actively be putting things in place that can allow them to show what their preferences are or their needs are. I liked one of your posts a while ago that had examples for recruiters in putting like preferences down for anyone that they were interviewing, which is just so, so needed. <laughs> I can't tell you like how many times, um, you know, if, I, if, 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 I'm, if I'm giving a talk and I, I, I say this like radical concept of providing interview questions ahead of time, like it's like, like brains explode, like as though this is like, and it's like humbling, like that's radical, like really? Yep. Um, but, yep. but it is radical in neuronormative so culture yeah. to, you know, and it's a lot of like, you know, when you, we talk about questioning your biases, like there's the unlearning of the things you were taught, right? Mm -hmm. So if you give questions ahead of time, that's giving quote unfair advantage as opposed to like, don't you actually want to see someone at their best? If they have the kind of brain that needs more time for processing, if they have the kind of brain that, you know, processes information best visually like you know for, for for you know i asked you to send me questions ahead of time and you you know always send me questions ahead of time um not that i necessarily like sometimes i write out responses and read from them but today it's just even just having them visually in front of me like yeah. helps me organize my thinking absolutely and it's something that you know i try to constantly do for myself but also all my clients and everyone i work with is just seeing what their needs are because we all have such different needs and I tend to not do the pre-questions but I offer or if I'm asked then I'll absolutely do it because I know like for me as when I'm being interviewed they freak me out <laughs> like yeah. I will get in my head and like overanalyze rather than just doing it on the fly but that's my different access need right and so just understanding and I think this is what I love most about all the work that I do with Neurokin is that we all just get that this is going to be a thing for us is like we're all going to be so different and we're just all just so open and accepting to whatever those differences are and know that we're going to be able to ask for it without being laughed at or judged or criticised or, you know, or impacting how people see us from a reputational standpoint too because I think, I mean, this isn't quite the example for that because I couldn't see why people would judge you wanting pre-questions but, but there are so many things that we do that, you know, can create like people in the workplace to question whether you're good at your job when yeah. it's irrelevant and they're all just biases that are going unchecked. Yes. Mm. And, you know, when we think about even just conflicting, at, you know, so, 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 so yes, we all have different brains that have different needs, but conflicting access needs in the workplace is this like whole nother, you know, I don't want to like at the end, I'm like, again, bringing up the new concept, but, yeah. you know, conflicting access needs between 
coworkers, um, between employers and employees. Um, but if you bring, mm. yeah, between clients, right? Mm. So it's 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 about I think transparency, and if we if we can norm that everybody has access needs, people with all types of brains have access needs. Yeah. Can we can we look at this through this lens of conflicting access needs that moves us in a more helpful way of negotiating and solving this problem as opposed to like powering over where the person has more powers access needs matter more exactly that disproportionate shift you know that's so true and I think that's a beautiful point to end on because I know we've both got to get on with our day so thank you for everyone for joining us and a huge thanks to Dr Mel Hauser who I'm just so thrilled to have as my first guest on this, my second podcast, <laughs> who's already been on Princess and the P. But yeah, thanks for staying up late for us. Thank you for having me. Thank um, you, as Dr. always, Mel. I love talking with you. I could talk with you all day. Definitely. Goodbye. Me too. Always. <laughs> Bye. Okay, so just wrapping up. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, that was the very first live NeuroAccess at Work podcast, which will be on every month on the third Tuesday of the month at 12.30 Australian Eastern Standard Time or Daylight Savings at the moment based in Sydney time. Or if you're in the US, 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. If you're catching this later, uh, please subscribe to our channel and follow social media. And, yeah, check out Princess and the P podcast as well, which is by and for neurodivergent queens. And finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, be sure to leave a rating and review and share with your friends and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us.